Well, good morning. Morning, peeps. What's up? My name's Sam. I'm your guest preacher today. There's a lot of guests here. That's cool. It's my job to run you off and then for Scott to apologize to you later. It's my job. Just want you to know there's a lot about E3 you may not know. Um, we are part of a denomination. I don't know if you know that. We're part of the denomination of the church in rock and roll. It's better if you say it like Lemmy because then it means something, right? Anyway, uh, we're going to continue our series uh, today on outsiders. And today we're going to be looking at Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus. So we're going to jump right in. So as you heard in the scripture, uh, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a mountain where he's transfigured before their eyes, transformed. And the scriptures describes that transformation as like a bright light surrounding Jesus. And two of the Bible's biggest celebrities show up at the scene, Moses and Elijah. Now, the Bible is full of echoes or references to other things. And so why these two guys? Well, they're, they're part of the history of uh, the Hebrew nation. So both of them have had big-time experiences with God on mountaintops. Moses, we know, right? He goes to Mount Sinai meets God, comes back with a little token called the Ten Commandments, right? We know about that. So that's pretty familiar. The Elijah story is not as familiar. It's from 1 Kings chapter 19. And so Elijah goes a couple of rounds with this uh, queen named Jezebel. She's pretty, she's pretty rude. She chews him out pretty good. He runs out into the desert kind of to get away. I'd probably, I'd probably run away too. And, uh, but the important thing is that God then gets him, brings him back, and has him travel again to Mount Sinai, where he shows himself to him to encourage him and say, no, it's good. Get back out there. Do the work that I've called you to do. So the fact that Moses and Elijah are both hanging with Jesus as he shows his true appearance to everybody in this scene in the Gospels, to the disciples, it's no coincidence. What it's saying is an echo. It's meant to remind us that God has shown himself before, and now he's showing himself again in Jesus. And there's another echo back to an earlier part of the Gospels where uh, Jesus is baptized by John. God tells everyone that Jesus is his beloved son, right? So same thing, same thing happens in this passage. Now, there's some references here about the resurrection, end time stuff that we're just not going to handle this morning because it's kind of a little messy. Uh, we're just going to focus on the transfiguration part and what that means to us. So much of the history of Jesus is examples of how he's like us, that he's God, but he's come in human form, just how human he is, right? Like, see, he has some of the difficulties we might encounter. He has friends. He suffered for his beliefs, things like that. And most, one of my favorite gospels, the gospel of Luke, kind of shows that humanness of Jesus. It makes us relate to him and kind of find traction with, with his stories. But Mark is different. Mark is the action version of the Gospels, okay? It's an action movie version of the life of Jesus. If you put it to film, it'd be full of action scenes and explosions and grenade and cars flipping over and stuff. And it'd be just about as long as your favorite Liam Neeson movie. That's about how long the Gospel of Mark would be. And this scene is no different, right? We've got like two two sentences, and then boom, you've got Jesus lighting things up like a Christmas tree. You've got cameo from heavy hitters like Moses and Elijah, and you've got booming voices coming at you at surround sound, things like this, right? Pretty intense scene, and it absolutely freaks the disciples out as it would. If Mark were today uh, angry on a social media chant, he would be in all caps typing the gospel of Mark. That's how intense this, this Bible uh, gospel is. So why does 
Mark write the story like that? Well, first of all, because he wants you to remember it. He wants it to stick with you. But more importantly, because he wants us to remember who we are in relation to who God is. And who are we? Mark is telling us, you ain't God. You're not God. Everybody knows that, right? God knows that. You know that. We're not him. There's a stark contrast between, between how human we are and how inhuman, how different God is in Jesus in this scene. Jesus is God. We are not. And though we know this, it's stories like this, this transfiguration story that remind us. Now, scholars have a weird word to describe the fact that we are not God. They call it otherness, otherness. And it's just a fancy word of saying that we're other than God. We're different than God. We're not like God. But there's a problem that comes with us thinking that God is not like us because we have deep-seated insecurities and shame associated with who we are. And this plays out in that idea of God being different. The first issue is that we think that means that he's far away. If he's different than us, that means he's far away. He's untouchable. And sometimes because of that, he's just downright unfriendly. But being different doesn't mean that God is away from us. Not at all. No, he's right here. He's right here among us now, and he's with each of us individually. We're going to talk some more about that in just a minute. But we also see the otherness of God in the idea that he's big and we're small, right? Like some cosmic parent who's breaking into your phone after hours, checking your texts, right? The kids over there are like, uh-huh, yeah, I know about that. Or grounding you for whatever through trials and tribulations or some form of suffering to teach you something. He's big and we're small. But that's not what the otherness of God is about at all. It's not about distance. It's not about size. It's not even about authority. It's about quality. It's about quality. You see, God is better than us. Newsflash, right? We know these things. God is better than us. He's the epitome of good character and right living and goodness, right? That's who he is. And though that's part of his DNA because God is love. And though we would like to be that way and strive to be that way, we're just not. Nobody is. Nobody is. And that's why we worship God and not other people. If you ever make the mistake, I've done this, making the mistake of worshiping someone else, putting them on a pedestal, it will not take long for them to let you down And then you can let them back off that pedestal, put God up there where he belongs, right? God is the one who's lifted high and we are below. But once again, it's not about spatial distance, high and low, or separation from God. It's a delineation of character, of quality. Part of worship is seeing that we're not much like God at all. And that is the reason why we worship him. In the book of Isaiah, God says this to us. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. In fact, he says that they are higher than your ways. Higher, better, pristine, excellent, good. Because of this, we are and continue to be outsiders in this way. And that's okay. We're supposed to know that and we're supposed to understand that. That's part of that Otherness, and there's hardly a better representation of that than the transfiguration of Jesus in this passage. 
I want to give you a little more of an example of a kind of otherness and maybe where the Bible intersects there. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. Have y'all ever heard that phrase, the fear of the Lord, woo, you know, whatever that is, right? You know, it's kind of one of those Bible words. So I want to give you a word image uh, that is kind of embedded in that Hebrew word fear. Let's say you're at a large party, a big gathering. There are people all around talking and different things like that. And in the back door walks Bob Dylan or Eddie Vedder or Taylor Swift or Jazz Phenom, Keith Garrett or one of the Kardashians, I don't know, you know, who, whatever celebrity you want can come in there, right? And maybe you're in high school and it's like your secret crush. You know the one. Well, you know. You know the one, right? And you watch that person slowly make their way around this room full of people, right? Talking, uh, enjoying themselves. And you try to act cool, which I always fail at. You may be better at it than I am, but I'd be like, oh my God. Yeah, I'd be freaking out. But, you know, in your case, uh, maybe you'd be cool about it. You go back to your conversation, but you're always aware of where that person is in the room. You may be talking over here, but you know that they're over there, right? And then maybe that person laughs loudly and it pulls you out of the conversation you're in because you can hear them and you have to force yourself to pay attention to that poor person that's trying to tell you what's going on with them. You're like, yeah, absolutely. But you're actually wondering where that person is. What I just described to you is biblical fear. Fear, biblical fear. It means to give respect through awareness and focus. Here's another example. Pretend you're out walking in the woods and just minding your own business, it's quiet, and down the way you see an opening and a deer walks into that opening directly in front of you, long ways away. You stop, barely making a sound because you want to take in the beauty of that scene, right? Because you're far enough away, there's no way that that deer can really tell that you're there. But then, in the quiet, suddenly that deer perks up, looks around, and those ears twitch. Have y'all ever had that happen or been in a situation and seen that before? The deer doesn't know where you are, but it definitely knows that you're there because it has picked up your scent. And that's the literal image undergirding the idea of fear in the Hebraic sense. It's aware of you. It fears you in the sense that it knows that you're there and it's giving you its focus, even though it doesn't know where you are. It's giving you respect. It's acknowledging that you're there. You see, biblical fear is not about being afraid. It's about knowing that something other is present in our world and in our lives and then acknowledging and respecting that presence for what it is. In our human mind, we're predisposed to think, be afraid of everything. So when we think fear or respect, we think we should give respect to people that can threaten our well-being like the Godfather deserves respect because there's no way you're going to be able to refuse his offer You know, if any Godfather fans out out there. But God isn't like that. God is love. He's to be respected because he's beautifully, gloriously, wonderfully different than us in quality. He deserves our awareness. He deserves our focus and our passion. Even though we're made in his image, we are still outsiders to the otherness of God's perfection and beauty. And that's the way it's supposed to be. God knows we are not him, and we know this too. And the Christian life is set up to be meaningful, knowing that and working within that relationship as it stands. So let me take you on my own personal journey a little bit to understand this. So I was raised in a Christian home. It was a great home. I had a great upbringing, and I was taught well it was a Christian home. 
However, somewhere along the way, I decided that it was my objective to impress God with my pious and holy behavior, with my good behavior. Now, all of this was meant for good. I was trying to be the best Christian I could, and I was working as hard as I could. And in most people's eyes, I was landing on 100, man. People are like, great, you're an awesome example. Your, your marriage is what I want my marriage to be, all that kind of stuff, right? I became a pastor. I worked as hard as I could to be a good person. But every time I felt like I was becoming a bit holier, that hamster wheel in the back of my mind convinced me of ways that I was no longer pleasing to God and wanted me to work harder and harder and harder at pleasing God. And I began to get angry. I was like, this is, this is a load of bunk, man. I can't do this. This is impossible. It takes too much energy. It's too stressful. I can't handle being a disciple of God. I became angry. That anger worked its way into a sense of sadness or depression associated with that. I realized I could not be God no matter how much I wanted to. I could not become the other. Couldn't do it because I'm not God. And I didn't understand that he didn't necessarily want me to be him. He wanted me to be me. And it ticked me off, man. I've been wasting years of my life trying to obtain something that belonged to one divine person. And then God took me on a different journey and help me experience something called the divine exchange. Now, that's just a fancy word, phrase I use to describe what Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. I don't know if you've ever read that passage, but he says, abide in me, I in you, and uh, that passage there. He uses that term abide. He talks about living in a way where he lives in us and we live through him, living within one another. So let me unpack that for you for just a minute and give you a few examples. So let's start where we left off, where we're, the part where we're not like God, that part. Let's start back there, okay? We will not match the quality of God. We can't. That's the first part of understanding what the divine exchange is all about. We cannot will ourselves to a place of holiness. I don't know if you tried that like I did. It's a futile undertaking. Just don't waste your time. It's not, it's not worth doing it. So God exchanges he transfers his holiness to us through the divine exchange. God brings his quality to our life through interchange. We're simply to allow Jesus to live out that grace-filled life through us. Our job is to surrender, is to become a vessel. It's not to try hard to be God. It's to allow God to flow through us in a spirit-filled life. Generally speaking, we are not kind as a people. We're just not. We pretend to. In the South, we do a real good job of pretending that we're kind. We're just not kind. So we, by yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God, allow God's kindness to flow through us, flow through us, not manufacture it, not create it, because you cannot create what God has in his otherness that belongs to him that he wants to use through you. We are not loving. We're just not. We're selfish. We don't sacrifice easily. We basically just do what we want to do. We're just not loving. So what do we do? We surrender to God and allow him to love others through us. If you're married, you cannot unconditionally give the love your spouse needs to them. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's an important thing to figure out. God can Love your spouse 
through you in the unconditional way that he desires. If you have family, if you have children, you can try to be the parent. But ultimately, if you'll allow God to parent through you, you'll see the results, the quality of otherness in your life. My 10-year-old just raised his hand. Son, I'm not going to, I'm not, no, this is not the time when we're talking about parenting, all right? So we're not faith-filled. We're not hopeful naturally. What are we? We're pretty negative and pretty cynical. I mean, we are. And uh, you live long enough. If you aren't, you live long enough, you'll become that way, right? But what we should do is allow the hope and joy of God to fill us and spill over into the life of people around us. The Christian life is not about us willing ourselves to be like God. That's not it at all. It's about yielding ourselves to be a vessel for God's goodness to flow through us. And if that sounds kind of like you should be a monk on a mountain or somewhere, or kind of esoteric or mystical or whatever, it's because it is. We're talking about spiritual things, spiritual things that spiritually happen to spiritual beings with a spiritual God. Here's a few examples to think about how that might work. So first off, imagine a glove laying on a table. There's your gloves. Empty and lifeless, just laying there, right? Can that glove do anything on its own right there? No, it cannot. Do you know what that glove represents? Us. It represents you and me. We suck at doing things. (laughs) We're horrible at being good people and doing things a holy way. Now, imagine a hand putting on that glove and moving around and becoming active. Now, the glove is moving. It's creating. It's serving. It's supporting. It's caring. The hand that goes in the glove is the Holy Spirit. That's the hand of God. We're the glove. God is the hand. And if we allow God's otherness to fill us, we just follow the Spirit, as they say, right? That's our job. It flows out of a heart that is yielded to him. And now this makes people nervous when I say this, and, uh, but I'm, I'm still gonna say it because it's true. So, and then I'll get off the stage and leave as a guest speaker and then, you know, whatever, right? So we should never ever serve out of a heart of obligation or guilt. That is not the Jesus way. That is not the Jesus way. God changes our heart to where we want to do good. Why? Because he is doing it through us. The other is flowing through us. It's flowing through us. So what about holiness? How do we change? How do we, okay, well, let's look at another example and talk about that. Think of a snake. Yay, Sunday morning, here's a picture of a snake. Welcome. Um, Specifically, a snake that is doing what? What's that snake doing? It's shedding its skin, it's molting, that's right. Question, does the snake shed its skin and then grow a new one afterwards? You ever thought about that? It does not. What's growing underneath that skin before the snake sheds the old one? That's right. That's just like us. God uses us as a vessel, and as he does, the unholy parts of who you are, those rough edges of your personality, of uh, whatever the case may be, the, the, the sin that, that keeps showing up over and over in your life, and you're like, golly, I just really need to pay attention to this sin so I can not worry about it. You're doing it wrong. Look away from the sin and look to God. As God uses you as a vessel, those unholy parts of us, they begin to fall off. Not because we did anything to make them go away, but because as we surrender to God, he transforms us without us really not uh, not noticing 
that much as it happens. That's how it's supposed to work. Not by us obsessing over our temptations or over our failures as a person. We're supposed to fear God in the Hebraic sense. We're supposed to give him respect and focus and awareness and attention and forget about all of those imperfections. And as we worship him, as we focus on him, we slowly transform. And that's when the shedding of those things that you don't want in your life begin to effortlessly fall off. And then you look back and you go, oh, I don't deal with that anymore. I didn't have any idea. We look back and we see that we're radically different than where we were before. And all we did was forget about our sin, fall in love with Jesus, and things change over time. Today we're celebrating baptism. Already had one awesome one. We're about to have another one. It's an ancient ritual. It just represents that process. In baptism, immersing in water represents the process of dying of the old ways and embracing the new. Now, this is important to know. Though going underwater and coming back up takes seconds, right? Just like we saw. The actual journey of abiding in Christ, of allowing that divine exchange happen, becoming a vessel for the otherness of God to roll through, the actual journey takes us an entire lifetime an entire lifetime. That's okay. That's the way God set it up because then we're in union with God the whole way through in divine union with him. There's not a benchmark or a perfection that we achieve. There's no report cards given out or uh, progress improvement plans we're given on. That's the good news. Just a loving God living in union with us, abiding with us and him, uh, him in us and, and us in him to the extent that we allow him to do that. That's the good news. And that's the essence of baptism. Amen? Amen. Amen.